Well, good morning. It is good to gather with you this morning to worship God together. Um, if you're new or you're visiting, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. And it's good to be gathered together with you as God's people in this place. A couple of announcements I just want to kind of bring your attention to as we get started this morning. Um, one, this coming Thursday, May 20th at 6.30, we'll have our last Common Ground for, for women in their ministry. So if you want to be a part of that, we'd invite you to come 6.30 on Thursday and be a part of that. Then on June 6th, following the worship service, we'll have our annual meeting. So if you're, especially if you're a member here, we'd invite you to really make that a priority to be part of that and to come and to hear about what God is doing in and through the life of the church, what we kind of see for the church going forward. We just want to gather together and kind of talk about what God is doing through the church. That's June 6th following the service. Also coming up, we have our VBS coming up in the end of July, and so that needs are just requires a lot of volunteers in order to create an experience that is a blessing for our families and for the kids of this community, and so we would invite you, if you want to uh, volunteer with that, to contact Sherilyn, coach, and she can hook you up with a way to serve in that capacity. So again, we're, we're glad you're here this morning um, just to worship God together. I invite you to stand. We're going to open up the heavens this morning. So stand up and we'll start our morning with a little bit of worship. Open up the heaven, we want to see you open up the 
we're going to raise a hallelujah a little bit this morning. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes, like, this week has been, a lot of weeks have been really difficult. And I, this week, was listening a lot to this song by Mavic City. I'm going to probably post this to Facebook on the church site later, but there's a, um, a song that they just released recently about many miracles, and it just talks about how many, counting all the many miracles we have in a day. And to me, that was such an encouragement. I mean, like, it's all the little things, all those tiny things that add up and make a difference in our lives, and how we so often just kind of forget to count those many miracles. And all of that to be said, like, we're raising a hallelujah to God. We're thanking Him for the things that He's done for us. We're counting our miracles. So this morning, let's raise a hallelujah.
Good morning. Uh, my name is Ian. I'm the other pastor, I guess. Um, we want to welcome you and thank you for being here. Uh, now would normally be the time that we take our offering. We're not taking an offering like we normally do. If you want to give, you can give online or there are boxes at the back. Um, if you want to give online, check out the website at tlefc.org. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for this opportunity to gather together here as the church, Lord. Um, we look outside, and we see your glory in this beautiful day that we have, Lord, and we thank you for it. Um, lots of times we look at the seasons, and we see different parts of the seasons that we like and we don't like. Like in winter, we like Christmas, but we don't love the freezing February. Or in spring, we like the idea of new life and stuff coming, but we don't like the mud, Lord. But we, we see your majesty in it, that there is order, that there is every season comes after the next one. And in each one, we can see different pieces of you, and we, we thank you for that, Lord. We ask that you would help us this morning to worship well, Lord. Help us to raise a hallelujah. Help us to sing loudly and well and just be honest in our praise. That we don't try and hide anything from you. That we don't try and put anything in the dark. But we, we allow ourselves to be honest and, and just show you that, yeah, we, we mess up on a regular basis, Lord. That we sin and... The only way that we are going to get cleansed from that is from you, Lord. We ask your blessing on the rest of our time together. We ask your blessing on Pastor Tim as he brings your word later. And we just thank you again for this opportunity to worship you together. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand again and continue worshiping. I love what Ian just said. And he said I've noticed he said this the last couple of weeks, too, um, about worshiping honestly and openly. Um, why don't you all stand? We're going to sing again, but as we're, as we're singing, let's just um, really let God work through you. Listen to the words. Listen to what we're singing. We're going to sing Man of Sorrows.
Father, we praise you that you are indeed faithful, you are good to us, that you care for us, that even when we are faithless, you remain, you remain faithful. We can rely on you to be true to your promises and to carry us through whatever life may bring us to. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the first major battle of the Civil War started when Union forces fired artillery shells at the headquarters of a Confederate general who had set up his headquarters in the house of a man named Wilmer McLean. And unfortunately for McLean, like one of the side effects of having an army set up headquarters in your house is that your house is in harm's way. And so eventually a cannonball came through McLean's chimney and caused significant damage. And so understandably, McLean was not a huge fan of this experience. So he was like, I need to get out of here. And so he moves him and his wife 120 miles south to get out of the path of the war. And the place they moved to was this little off-the-beaten-path town, 120 miles south, called Appomattox Courthouse. So if you know your Civil War history, like you maybe see where this is going. Right? So like, they live in this little town called Appomattox Courthouse, and it's just outside of this town that Robert e. Robert e. Lee decided that it was time to surrender, effectively ending the Civil War. And so Robert E. Lee sends a messenger into this town to find an appropriate place for him to formally surrender. And where should this messenger knock first? But on Wilmer McLean's front door. And so it comes to pass that Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant meet in McLean's parlor to formally sign... Or for Lee to formally surrender. McLean would later say, like, the war began in my front yard and it ended in my front parlor. And I just found that to be like an incredible coincidence right? that the war would start and end effectively on the same man's property, especially when that man had moved like, intentionally to get away from the war. It's just a crazy coincidence. Right? And as I was researching that story, I came across a few other coincidences that I just thought were too good not to share. So a couple of these, right? In 2011, a meteor hit the family of a, hit the house of a family in France, and that family's last name was Comet. <laughs> in, in 2001, a 10-year-old girl named Laura Buxton, like, filled up a balloon with helium, wrote her name on the side along with her address, and said, please return to Laura Buxton. And she let the balloon go up into the air. It flew 140 miles south and descended in the yard of a girl named Laura Buxton. <laughs> in China recently, an 80-year-old man saved an 8-year-old boy from drowning, only to discover that he had saved that boy's father from drowning 30 years earlier. Coincidences like, coincidences like this, I just, are... Fascinating. Like they're intriguing. But of course, many things that look like coincidences ultimately are not just the product of mere chance. Instead, like, things that look like coincidences are often God's sovereign work at hand. We see an example of this in, 
and Ruth chapter 2, where we're going to spend our time this morning. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in the seat in front of you. And as you turn to Ruth 2, let me just give you a brief recap of what we saw in Ruth chapter 1 last week. So in Ruth chapter 1, we saw this woman, Naomi, and her husband, Elimelech, and their two sons, like they flee Israel because of a famine, and they move to Moab. And while they're there, these two sons, they marry Moabite women named Orpah and Ruth. But then both Elimelech and both sons die, leaving Naomi and Ruth and Orpah with no real way to provide for themselves. And so Naomi plans to return to Israel in order to seek help from her people. But before she goes, she urges Ruth and Orpah to go back to their own families in Moab, to return to their homes and seek help there. And Orpah does that. She returns to her family. But Ruth commits herself to Naomi and to Naomi's people and to Naomi's God. You think that would encourage Naomi, but when they arrive in Israel, Naomi, in her own words, is bitter and empty because of what she's experienced. She believes that God has forsaken her, that God has forgotten her. She sees no hope for a future. So, like, that's a pretty bleak chapter. But chapter 1 ends with this little sliver of hope. The narrator tells us that Naomi and Ruth returned to Israel just as the barley harvest was beginning. Meaning that there was at least food to be had in the land. Now it was just a matter of how are Naomi and Ruth going to get some of that food for themselves. That's where we pick up in, in Ruth chapter 2. What I want us to see this morning as we walk through this chapter is this. Right? That apparent coincidence and human kindness display God's providence. Right? In other words, that God shows his goodness to us. He showed it to Naomi and Ruth right, through things that look like coincidence and through other people's kindness to us. And for Naomi and Ruth, it was through a man named Boaz. So let's take a look at Ruth chapter 2 together. Verse 1 says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So this is just like the author's little comment here. He should give us a little sneak peek of what's to come. But... It's important to realize, like, Ruth, just because the author says this, Ruth knows nothing about this man, Boaz, at this point. Right? Knows nothing about him. And as far as we can tell, Naomi knows him, but she has no expectation that he's going to be any kind of help. She doesn't even mention him to Ruth. So I'm picking up in verse 2, we read, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone and whose eyes I find favor. So Ruth sets out, but she's not looking for Boaz. She doesn't know anything about him. She just wants to go find a field where someone will let her glean, where someone will let her walk behind and pick up leftover grain. Like this is the provision that's made in the Old Testament. Like Leviticus 19 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, Do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So the idea here is that like harvesters would go through a field, they would 
They would harvest whatever they could, but they were bound to miss a few bits of grain along the way. And the law says in Leviticus right, that harvesters should not go back for a second pass through in order to pick up any leftover grain. And so they should leave that leftover grain for the poor and the needy and for foreigners. And likewise, owners were to leave the edges of their fields unharvested so that the poor had a way to provide for themselves. And it's just a, it's a providential, a God-given way for the, for the needy to provide for themselves without having to, to rely on handouts. Right? They still have the dignity of work without having to just rely on pure handout, but they could do work as well. The problem, though, is that just because they were commanded in the law doesn't mean every landowner obeyed the law. Last week, we said that Ruth takes place during the time of the judges, which was a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. People weren't obeying God's law very consistently during this time. But just because Ruth heads out to find somewhere to glean, right? it's no guarantee that she's going to find a place where the landowner is going to obey the law. Like she is well aware that she needs to go to a place where she can find favor with the landowner. But it's no guarantee. And she's putting herself in a very vulnerable situation here. She is this young, foreign woman like going out to work in fields amongst men, right? In a, in a place where many people were doing what was right in their own eyes. She's putting herself at a great personal risk for the sake of getting food for her and Naomi. Which is what makes Naomi's response so strange. At the end of verse 2, Naomi responds by saying, Go ahead, my daughter. And so, Naomi is probably in her 50s at this point. As far as we can tell, she just made the trip from Moab to Israel on foot with no apparent problem. Which raises the question, why didn't Naomi go with Ruth to help glean? Like, two people would surely gather more food. And they'd be able to provide some level of protection for each other. But Naomi simply says, like, not, oh, I'll come with you. She says, go ahead. She doesn't even say, Thank you. Shouldn't say the Lord bless you. There shouldn't give any guidance on where to go or who to go to. She just says, "Go ahead." And the narrator doesn't tell us explicitly why Naomi responds this way, but like I take it as an indication that Naomi here is still like wallowing in her own in her own bitterness and her own self pity that we talked about last week. Like she seems to be thinking, it doesn't matter what I do. Because God is out to get me. And so I'm just not going to do anything. There's no point. So if Naomi and Ruth are going to eat, it's up to Ruth. So picking up in verse 3, we read, So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. I don't know if you ever had this experience, but have you ever like said good luck to someone, right? And then like some holier than thou Christians like, I don't believe in luck, I believe in God. And like they're all too, you know and then you start like, yeah, I know, like luck's not real, like I I believe in God. It's just an expression. And if that ever happens to you, right, just know that like you have this verse. 
right? Because, like, that phrase, as it happened here, or as it turned out, is literally translated, or literally says, as her chance chanced. She's like, the author's saying, like, oh, she got lucky, but he knows she didn't just get lucky. It's like he's saying, like, oh, she just so happened to end up in the field belonging to Boaz. As if she just arbitrarily picked this field and happened to get lucky that it belonged to Boaz. As if it was just some coincidence, like a war ending and beginning in the same man's property. But the author writes that as her chance chance. He writes it with tongue firmly planted in cheek, or whatever the written version of that is. Like, like the author knows this is not mere coincidence. The author knows it didn't just happen to turn out this way. He knows that Ruth didn't just happen to get lucky. Like clearly the hand of God is behind bringing Ruth to this field in this time. If that wasn't enough, another seeming coincidence takes place in verse 4. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. It's not only does Ruth chance into Boaz's field, but Boaz just happens to arrive shortly after Ruth. And when he arrives, he greets the harvesters with the words, The Lord be with you. And often in the Bible, the first words that a person speaks are important. They tell us something about the character of that person. That's the case with Boaz here. His first words are, the Lord be with you. They acknowledge that he is a man who knows and who loves God. And so Ruth just happens to choose a field of a man who knows and loves God. A man who just happens, unbeknownst to Ruth, to be one of her deceased father-in-law's relatives. Who just so happens to arrive at around the same time that she shows up. That is quite the apparent coincidence. And of course, as outsiders, we know that it's not a coincidence. The author of Ruth makes that clear. But for Ruth, in the moment, it probably felt like this fortuitous coincidence at the time. Like, huh, that's fortunate that I found a field with a kind owner. And we, at least I, like, I do the same thing so often. Like, I'm really quick in my heart, to question God when things go wrong. But I'm far slower to give him credit when things go right. Like if I, if you get hurt in a car accident that was entirely the other driver's fault, it's natural and it's easy to, to ask God, like, why would you let that happen to you? But how often do you thank God when you get back from the grocery store incident-free. Like, or if I woke up tomorrow, like just a crippling pain for no apparent reason, like I'd be inclined to ask God, like, why did you let that happen to me? But you know what my first thought is most mornings when like, my feet hit the floor? I don't usually think, oh, God, like, thank you that I feel pretty good today. Like, I did this morning because I knew I was going to say that, but normally <laughs> I don't do that. So if you're, you're, or you're just feeling down, you're like feeling dejected. It's natural, it's easy to like wonder why God is letting you go through whatever is making you feel down or dejected. But when, 
when an old friend just happens to call you in the midst of your feeling dejected and your hurt, and that friend encourages you and speaks words that lift up your soul? Do you thank God for that coincidence, or do you chalk it up to chance? It's, it's so easy to take things for granted when they work out for our good, when they work out as we expect them to, but then to seek to blame someone when things go wrong. We saw Naomi do that in chapter 1. When her husband and her sons died, she became bitter and empty, and she blamed God. But now the question is, like, as these good things start to happen, right, through these apparent coincidences, will the characters in this story, will they see the hand of God, or will they chalk it up to mere chance? The question is the same for us. When, when good things happen in our lives, even things that seem pretty routine and normal? Do we see the hand of God at work in the good things of our lives? When we experience what seem to be fortuitous coincidences in life, will we chalk it up to good luck, a random chance, or will we see God's sovereign hand guiding it all? And one of the lessons of this book is that there are no mere coincidences, that things don't just happen by chance. Like that God is at work even when things seem like coincidences. And another way that God is at work is through the kindness of others. Like pick up the story in, chapter, in verse 5 of chapter 2. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and had remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Do not go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women and work who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live in a with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. 
She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what was left over after she had eaten enough. That whole passage shows exceptional human kindness on the part of Boaz. It's incredible enough that Ruth would find a field where someone would let her follow behind the harvesters and glean what was left over. But what Boaz offers go far beyond what was required by the law. Not only does Ruth not only does he offer Ruth the right to glean, but he also offers her protection. He lets her drink from the water that is reserved for his workers. And like we take that for granted, but remember, like water's a precious commodity in this time and place. He invites her to partake in a meal. And the author says that she ate all she wanted and had some left over. Like that's normal for us. Like we go to a restaurant and like we ate three days worth of calories, and we still bring half our food home. Like, that's, like, that's, that's normal. Like we, at every meal, we eat until we are full, and then a little bit more, and we still have leftovers. But imagine what that must have been like for Ruth. She's this foreign widow, living in a patriarchal land that was not a big fan of her people. Like she was so desperate for food that she was just hoping someone will let her walk behind the harvesters and pick up whatever they drop. Who knows the last time Ruth had a full meal? But Boaz invites her to his table and allows her to eat until she is full. But his kindness doesn't stop there. Boaz says, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks from her her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Right, so in this time when harvesters like harvested grain, they would grab the grain in their left hand, they would cut it with a knife in their right hand and then they would like pull it in the crook of their arm until they couldn't hold anymore. And then they would just get a big pile and leave it on the ground. That was, that was a sheave. And so and the woman would come along afterwards and bind up these sheaves and gather them all together. And so normally gleaners like Ruth were not allowed amongst the sheaves because the landowners thought, oh, they might be tempted to, to take some of the grain from the sheaves rather than only picking up the loose grain. But, Ruth, but Boaz gives Ruth permission to go amongst the sheaves. And not only that, he tells his harvester right, to pull out some of the stalks out of the bundles just lay them on the ground so she can pick them up easily. And the result is that at the end of the day, she is an ephah of barley. I don't know how up to speed you are on your Hebrew measurements. Like, when I read that, like, I didn't know what to picture. Like, an ephah could be like a handful, it could be like a swimming pool full. Like, I didn't know. So luckily my Bible has a little footnote that tells me that an ephah is equal to about three-fifths of a bushel, which helps me... Like, zero percent. Like that, that tells me nothing. Thank you, Babel. And so after some digging, I finally figured out, like, an ephah is about five and a half gallons of barley, or about 30 to 50 pounds. When I was growing up, we had three golden retrievers. So like they, we, like, flew through dog food, like nobody's business, right? Like, 
three full-grown golden retrievers. They ate a ton of food. And so, like, every couple of weeks, we would go to the pet store, and we would buy several bags of the biggest bags of dog food you could find. Like, if my memory serves, those, those bags were 50 pounds. And, like, they were heavy. Like, I got the job of hauling them from the vehicle to the house often, and I didn't like that job. But that's, that's how much barley, like, Ruth goes home with. According to people who know these things, it's about like a two-week supply of food for two people. Like that's incredible. Like gleaning is typically a, a make-ends-meet kind of situation. It's like just enough to get by on. But thanks to the kindness of Boaz, Ruth goes home with far more, with a two-week supply. Right? And that's just day one. Boaz invites her to come back day after day during the barley harvest. This generosity with putting Naomi and Ruth into a position like not to have to worry about food for the first time in who knows how long. And again, like this human generosity is God's means of providing for and blessing Naomi and Ruth. The kindness of other people to us is one of God's means to show us his love and his care for us. But just like with coincidences, I don't always see God's hand behind the kindness of other people to me. There's a, there's a joke, I first heard it in the movie The Pursuit of Happiness, and it goes like this. There were two men, or there's a man who was drowning. And a boat came, and the man on the boat said, do you need help? And the man who was drowning replied, no thank you, God will save me. Then another boat came and tried to help him. But he said, no thanks, God will save me. And then he drowned and went to heaven. And the man said to God, like, God, why didn't you save me? And God said, I sent two boats, you dummy. And like, that's funny, but it also resonates a little bit with me. Like, like so often I want God to show up in some big, miraculous way in my life for me to feel his presence. I want God to do something mighty and great. God often worked in the day-to-day activities of life right, through means like the kindness of our fellow human beings to us to achieve his purposes. That's what he's doing here for Naomi and Ruth through the kindness of Boaz. And there's like, like, two things for us to take from this. First, like, we should be inclined to see the kindness of other people towards us as a gift from God. Just like we should see God at work through coincidences, like we should be inclined to see God's hand at work when people are kind to us. It is clear that God is at work to bring about his good purposes in the life of Naomi and Ruth through the kindness of Boaz. He's not doing it through these flashy, miraculous means. He's doing it through the everyday kindness of a fellow human. And so when you when you experience, when someone is exceptionally kind to you, by all means, like, thank that person for their kindness. But also, like, thank God for the work he is doing in your life, in that person's life, for them to show that kindness to you. So we, should, we should thank God when people are kind towards us. And then second, we should also like, be God's means of blessing others by our kindness to them. 
We should look for opportunities to allow God to work through our act of kindness in order to bless other people. When Boaz is explaining to Ruth why he is being so kind to her, he says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz understands that his act of kindness towards Ruth, that it was not a way for him to just show off what a great person he was, but that it was a way for him to extend God's blessings towards Ruth. God will bring opportunities into our lives where we can interact with people. We have a chance to show exceptional kindness to a person. When those opportunities come, when those situations arise, we have a decision to make. We can choose to be selfish and self-focused. Like Boaz didn't have to do any of this for Ruth. He could have greedily kept as much grain as he if possible, for himself. Right? And no one would have thought less for, of him for it. We can choose to be selfish and self-focused. Or we can choose, like Boaz, to show sacrificial kindness and generosity to the people that God brings into our lives. And when we choose to extend that kind of kindness and generosity, and we choose to be God's means of blessing other people, we will at times have the unique opportunity to see up close and personal the transforming power of God's grace in the lives of broken and hurting people. Pick up the story in verse 19. So Ruth comes back to Naomi. 19, her mother-in-law, Naomi, asks Ruth, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, the man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the woman of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. She lived with her mother, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So in these verses, Naomi's eyes are opened to see the providence of God at work in her life. Like here is Naomi, who up to this point in the story has been bitter and empty and convinced that God is out to get her. Then all of a sudden, here in this these verses, she says, The Lord bless him. And then she says, He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. And the question is, like, is that he, Boaz, or is it God? The NIV translation kind of makes it sound like it's Boaz when she says, he has not stopped showing kindness. But most of the like, smarter-than-me Hebrew scholars agree that like, Naomi's referring to God when she says, he has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. 
So Naomi goes from saying things, like in chapter 1, to, she says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And now here in chapter 2, she says, God has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. And the question is, what changed? And the answer is that Naomi had experienced the mercy and the grace of God through the kindness of Boaz. All throughout the Bible, we see people radically transformed when they encounter the kindness and the mercy of God. And Boaz, by choosing to be God's means of showing kindness, had the privilege of playing a part in that dramatic transformation in Naomi's life. And here's the thing. Boaz chose that generosity and that kindness, first and foremost, because he had a right understanding of how generous and kind God had been to him first. And having experienced that kindness himself, he wanted to extend it to others. And the same thing should be true of us. When we understand how kind and how generous and how gracious God has been to us, especially in Jesus, when we understand how he sent Jesus to die on our behalf while we were still his enemies, so that through faith we could have eternal life, when we truly believe in believe and we understand that kindness and that graciousness towards us, how can we not also show love and kindness towards those around us? So maybe you're, maybe you're here this morning and you're like Naomi and Ruth chapter 1. You are bitter. You're empty. You don't believe that, what, that God wants good for you. Maybe you're not even sure God is real at all. You're just burnt out, you're hurt, and you're bitter. So my hope, my prayer for you, if that's you this morning, that you would experience God's kindness and His love towards you in Jesus. No matter what you've done in the past, no matter how bitter and broken you feel in this moment, God loves you, God cares for you, and He shows that love for you by sending Jesus to die on the cross in your place. And I would invite you this morning, if you haven't before, to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. To be healed and to be transformed and to receive the transforming power of God towards you. So those of us who are here who have received that transforming power, who have trusted in Jesus and received God's grace, my encouragement for us is that we would go from here seeking to extend God's grace and kindness and mercy to others. That we would seek to be like Boaz to Naomi and Ruth, being the means God uses to show his love and mercy and grace to others so that God can do powerful, transforming work in the lives of the people around us. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness, for your mercy. Even when we take things for granted, even when we don't acknowledge all the blessings in our lives, 
you are still so good to us. You give us breath. You love us. You care for us. God, will we feel that love that you have for us this morning? Even as we walk through hard times, as we walk through challenges, as we see your goodness at work through the roles other people play in our lives and through the good things that happen to us, even when they look like coincidences. So will we, above all, see your love and care for us in Jesus? Will we never cease to be amazed by what a great Savior Jesus is, what an amazing God you are in sending him for us? When we have moments where we're prone to doubt your goodness, when we look to the cross, is your clear display of your love for us. As we walk through hard times, would we be reminded that this world, that this life is not all there is, but that through Jesus' death and then his resurrection, he promises that he is coming back again, that he will usher in a new heavens and a new earth when we will be with him forever. And there will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. Will that hope of that future carry us through even the hardest time? Would we go living in light of that promised future, confident in who you are, and seeking to bless other people for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as a way of benediction, hear these words from God. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed.
muted that whole time. So it's muted.